Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for the joy that you give us. The joy that we get to celebrate this weekend. The joy of freedom that we get to celebrate in this country. And more than that, the joy of freedom from sin. God, thank you for that. Thank you for sending your son and that you are glorified in him. We pray that as we dive into your word, that Lord, you can speak through me. Let it not be my word spoken, but your word spoken through me. God, because you know my words fail time and time again, but your words never do. So we pray that we can look at your word, get from it what you want us to get from it and apply it so that others may see you in us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, how are we doing today? All right, we're excited. Uh, I'm excited to be here, and this weekend is exciting. We get, a, uh, we get to celebrate this weekend. Happy 3rd of July. Um, we get to celebrate freedom in this country, and that is such a great thing that we get to celebrate. But we also get to celebrate something infinitely more great. Inf- infinitely more great? Sure. Um, we get to celebrate freedom from sin, and it's infinitely more great because, as it turns out, sin is worse than British people. So... It's a great thing that we get to celebrate today. Um, But if you guys don't know me, my name is Dave Arbogast. I am the Canton student minister here at Revolution Church. I I am honored and humbled that I get to be in the position that I'm in. I'm even more honored and humbled that I get the family that I have. Um, I wanna introduce them to you uh, through pictures. We got a couple pictures. My wife, Amanda, and my little daughter, 18-month-old Riley. Um, aren't they pretty? They're pretty. Um, Riley looks terrified there, but just give her a piece of watermelon and uh, she will light up. She'll cheese for you. There it is. Um, yeah, so I, I have the most amazing family. And honestly, I feel so blessed to be in the position that I'm in here at Revolution Church. I get to minister to and with our students. Uh, and part of my job as student minister is, uh, is humbling our students. Uh, now, I, I love basketball, and many of our students are uh, athletic. Many of our students love basketball as well. And so I take it as my personal responsibility to make sure they know their place. You're welcome. Um, an example of this, we went to uh, mission camp a couple weeks ago. We brought 200 people there, and uh, we challenged uh, some of us leaders who enjoy basketball. We challenged the students to anybody, anybody that wanted to play us, we're, we're down to play. Uh, we got our 30 and older group. Yes, that means I am older than 30. I'm 31. Uh, you guys are like, I thought a teenager was up there. Um, but we got our 30 and older group to uh, get together, five of us, and we played some four-on-four basketball with our students. And I'm proud to say we went six and one. That's right. Doing our part in humbling our students. But I love basketball, and I want my daughter, Riley, to love basketball as well. Just going to make life easier because basketball is going to be on the TV. Daddy's going to go and play basketball. So it makes it easier if she can be a part of that. And so I'm trying to teach her to love basketball. 
We've got a little Tykes basketball hoop, the little plastic one that she can dunk on, and she does it every now and then. Um, We've got a a basketball hoop in her tub that she has to make a shot before she can leave the tub. And so, get pretty intense in this. Um, But she just doesn't fully get it. Like, when we want her to shoot, sometimes she just doesn't do it. She would rather take the ball throw it between her legs, look at it, turn back to us, and just laugh. Like, that's what she would rather do, because that's how she wants to have fun. And so she doesn't understand the rules. She doesn't understand the purpose of basketball. She doesn't play like daddy plays. And so she just doesn't quite get it. When I was telling Pastor David this, uh, and about how Riley just doesn't quite get basketball, he goes, oh, so like the Atlanta Hawks. Okay. It's... (laughs) hey, that's your campus pastor, all right? I'm just the messenger. But as a Heat fan, it made me laugh. Um, So we are gonna be actually looking in the book of John. And as Jesus is giving this command that we're gonna be reading about to his disciples, we will probably feel a little bit like Riley, where Riley doesn't quite understand the purpose of basketball or the extent of basketball we may not fully uh, understand the extent of Jesus's command for us. So let's dive into it. Let's dive into John 13, verses 31 through 35. That's where we're gonna be. But before we read anything in scripture, I say this all the time to our students, before we read anything in scripture, there's something that we need to know. If you know it, say it. Wow, I love you guys. Um, If you didn't get that, it was context, background information. It helps us better understand exactly what we're reading. The Bible's not always the easiest thing in the world to read, but if we have some context, it makes it a little easier. So what is context to John 13, verse 31? Thankfully, the way that we read scripture at this church, the way that uh, we go through the book of John, it has kind of already built in some context to what we're gonna read. But if you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, let me kind of break down a little bit of what we've been reading about. So Jesus had been having his last supper with his disciples. And after they ate, after Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he ended up sending Judas out because he revealed to Judas that he was going to betray him. Now, the disciples didn't quite understand this. They didn't understand what was going on. As Pastor David last week uh, gave us that illustration of that private conversation that he was having with John and with Judas, about revealing that Judas was going to betray him, the other disciples weren't really aware of what was going out or what was going on. However, Judas was sent out. And as D.A. Carson, the biblical scholar, says, this started the machinery of Jesus's arrest, trial, and execution. It was put into motion in this moment. And so when Jesus sent Judas out, What this begins traditionally is known as Jesus's farewell discourse. So starting in verse 31 of chapter 13, this is Jesus's farewell discourse, basically his final goodbye to his disciples. Now, this was a, a typical thing. When somebody knew that they were going to die, they would kind of set things up for the future. We see this in Deuteronomy 31 through 33. Moses gives a farewell discourse to the Israelites to set them up for success. A lot of these farewell discourses included different parts, such as a prediction of their death. 
a, uh, a arrangement for succession. Who was going to take over afterwards? A, an urging of moral behavior or an encouragement to behave morally. And then finally, a final commission, a sending out of, uh, of the disciples or of the people listening. Now, Jesus' farewell discourse was not the last time that he would talk to his disciples. We know that after Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and then he appeared before his disciples a few times and was able to talk to them then. However, this was the last conversation that he was going to be having with his disciples in a major way before he died on the cross. And now this had to have been very confusing to his disciples. For Jesus to start talking like this had to have been confusing because they looked at the Messiah as someone that was going to free them from oppression. Now they thought that it was the Roman oppression that they would be freed from, this physical oppression. And so they looked at their situation and, was like, and they were like, we got a ways to go. We still got work to do, Jesus. I don't know why you're, t-. they were probably thinking, why, why are you talking like this? Why are you talking as if you are going to be leaving? We still have work to do. However, Jesus didn't come to free them from physical oppression, came to free them from spiritual oppression. And so that's where Jesus starts here in verse 31. With all that context in mind, let's start reading in John 13, verse 31. When he had gone out, let's stop there real quick. You're like, Dave, we're five words in. I know. What, Jesus, or what the Bible's talking about here is Judas, Judas being sent out. We talked about that, but I want to point that out here in verse 31 because there's, an, a, there's a very important uh, concept that I want us to get. It's only after Judas leaves that Jesus starts his farewell address. It's only after. Now, this shows that Jesus's timing is perfect. His farewell address was not meant for Judas. It was only meant for those that were going to be faithful to Jesus long-term, the other 11. Yet Jesus didn't, didn't start his farewell address while Judas was there. He was in control of the entire thing. It was only after he sent him out that he said, okay, the cogs are in motion. Now I'm going to start this address. And that's because Jesus was in control of everything at that time. Okay, we'll keep reading. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Okay, it's a lot of glorifies, a lot of hymns. I did the math for us, you're welcome. Uh, there's five glorifieds and five hymns. And so let's break down these words to help better understand exactly what Jesus was saying here. Glorify is the same Greek root word throughout these verses. That root word is doxa. It means to praise. That's what glorify means, it's to praise, to praise God. And we get that, uh, or we see that in the word doxology. It means a form of praise. We see, uh, when, we, when we reference different hymns, that those are doxologies. Now, when we look at the word hymn, it's basically talking about God and Jesus. And, and Jesus goes back and forth talking about God, glorifying God and glorifying Jesus. Now, God and Jesus 
as we know the doctrine of the Trinity, God and Jesus are three in one. They are three and they are one. And that's, that's pretty confusing. Honestly, when we, when we look at that, we might think like, I, I don't quite understand that. With our brains, we don't quite understand that. However, if God was limited by my brain, that would be a pretty small God. Uh, let me give you an example. We have a student here that my wife and I, we always, uh, uh, on a Sunday, we go to the lobby, we talk to him, and he always has a card trick for me. And so he does the card trick, and sometimes I understand what he's doing. Other times, he fools me. He's 12, and he fools me with a card trick. If God is limited by my brain, which gets fooled by a 12-year-old, that's a small God. So I'm happy that God is not limited by that. Uh, now, if we were to summarize these verses, verses 31 and 32, it would basically be that Jesus revealed who God was. He's revealing who God was, which gives God glory. It gives him praise. But so intertwined are the Father and the Son, remember, three in one, so intertwined are they that God can glorify Jesus and in turn glorify himself. So there's a lot of glory being passed around between God and Jesus. And these verses actually echo Isaiah 49. They echo this passage in the Old Testament where in this passage, the servant of the Lord is being described. And the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was known as God's servant nation. He would speak to and through the nation of Israel so that people would know who God was. And so he would use Israel as his servant nation. However, Israel failed him time and time and time again. Honestly, they were constantly doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Isaiah 49, in this passage, a servant is described that is sent to save the world. This is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. That Messiah is Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In whom I will be glorified. The disciples had seen Jesus do amazing things. Absolutely amazing things. And in this verse, verse 31, he says, now is the son of man glorified. Now the disciples were probably looking at that and being like, now? Haven't you already been glorified? I mean, they saw him teach amazing things. They saw him be a leader. He was their rabbi. They saw him do crazy miracles. So how did he, how is it, how is it going to be glorified now and not then? Well, Isaiah 49 points out that Jesus's glorification is not tied to all those miracles. It was tied to his death. Now, why? Why is it tied to his death and not all those miracles? Why is he glorified in that way specifically? Well, it's because only Jesus could die for what he died for. See, other people have taught great things in the Old Testament. Other people had done great miracles in the Old Testament. Only Jesus could die for what he died for. 
Jesus's death is something only he could do due to who he is. You see, only Jesus could do what he did because he was who he is. If you're taking notes, write that down. Only Jesus could do what he did because he was who he is. Glorifying Jesus means valuing and acknowledging him for who he truly is. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do we glorify Jesus for who he is or for what he does? Do we glorify Jesus for who he truly is the son of God, God himself? Or do we glorify him because of what he does for us? Because we can shape our view of God based on what he does for us. Think about it. As a student, have you ever, we were all students at one time. As a student, did you ever not study for a test, but miraculously you passed? Anybody? Anybody? Good amount of people. Yeah, and in that moment, you're thinking, how did this happen? God, only you. Only you, Lord. You are good. Yeah, so we, we glorify God in that moment for what he has done for us. However, on the flip side of that, what happens when a loved one dies? It could be easy to go in the complete opposite direction and ask the question, Does God even exist? And if he does, why did he let that happen? Is he actually good? As an adult, we all know this situation. We've been driving over the speed limit. We get pulled over. Cop comes up, should hand us a ticket. Instead, gives us a warning. God, you're looking out. Good looking out. You are good. And so we glorify him for what he's done. However, what if later on we lose our job? Well, then is God, does God even care about me? If so, why would he let that happen? You see, we are shaping our view of God based on what he does for us or doesn't do for us. But all along the way, God hasn't changed. God has not changed throughout that whole time. Just our view of him has. It reminds me of Riley. Riley loves to spin around in circles just because I guess she likes being dizzy. And parents, you know, if your child loves spinning around in circles, usually it's near the most dangerous part in the house. And so she always loves spinning right next to our coffee table. And I'm just envisioning her busting her head open. It hasn't happened yet because God is good. Um, But so my wife and I, we always just sit there posted up still as statues, letting her spin, but we're ready to catch her. We don't move. However, Riley, as as she is spinning, her view of the world is that the world is moving. It's not. It's still. However, her view is that it moves. That's the same way. God does not move. However, our view of him is constantly changing based on if we glorify him for what he does for us, our view of him is constantly changing based on our circumstances, even though he does not change. 
And in fact, if God does nothing else for us, going forward, if he does nothing else for us, he has already done more for us than we could possibly deserve. And so he deserves all the glory, not for what he does, but because of who he is. So how do we actually glorify Jesus? How do we glorify him? The main way that we can do it is in our obedience. How we follow him. Do we, do we use the words that he wants us to use? Do we uplift people? Do we encourage people or do we tear them down? Do we use our words to glorify ourselves? Or do we use them to glorify God? Do we uh, grow? That's another way that we can be obedient is in our growth. Do we actively pursue furthering our relationship with Jesus? Or are we just saying, I'm good. I'm in a good place. I don't need to do anything else. I know, I know God pretty well. How, do we, how are we glorifying Jesus right now? Jesus is gonna switch, switch gears a little bit into a different challenge for us. In verse 33, he, he kind of raises the temperature a little bit. This is what he says in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he says, little children, he addresses his disciples like this. And we can look at that and say, that's pretty demeaning, calling them little children. But in reality, what Jesus is saying here is that they are now a part of his family. He is considering them part of his family and he is a loving, gentle father. And so this isn't demeaning at all. It's actually uplifting. He says, yet a little while I am with you. Now here, Jesus could have been referring to his death or his ascension after he raises from the dead and then goes up into heaven. He could have been talking about being, being around a little bit while longer in either one of those cases. Bottom line is that time is short. That's what he's saying. Time is short right now. He says, you will seek me, but where I am going, you cannot come. Now, if they truly understood this, if they truly understood that they could not follow Jesus where he was going, they might've been okay with that. If they truly understood that pain and suffering that Jesus was going to go through on his path to and on the cross, they might have been okay hearing this. But in this moment, they were probably like, why, why can't we follow you? Why not? We've been following you these past three years. Why can't we follow you now? Now, Jesus would eventually, or the disciples would eventually suffer persecution. They would experience, all of them experience persecution. In fact, all 11 of these disciples, with the exception of John, would die for their faith, would die for their belief in Jesus. Now, John still experienced different persecution. He just didn't happen to die. But Jesus is wanting to set up his disciples for what is to come. And that is a life without him on earth. He is going to be leaving and he wants to set them up well. So he instructs them. And this is where Jesus throws it down. This is where Jesus gives a new command to these disciples. And it might seem like as we read this, it might not seem very different. 
And the disciples might think the same thing, but let's get into it. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, these disciples had most likely memorized all about what God says in the Old Testament about love. They've probably memorized a ton of what Jesus has already talked about with love. He says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Heart, soul, and mind. Then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He gets that from Leviticus 19. And then he adds a twist to love. We see in Matthew 5, 44, he says to uh, love your enemies. So not only love your neighbor, but love your enemies as well. So Jesus has already talked about a ton of things about love. And if we look at that, he's saying to love everyone. So what is this new command? He's already said to love everyone. Well, the new commandment is that we are to love one another like Jesus loves. We are to love one another like Jesus loves. Jesus has now given us a standard. We could define love however we want. However, if it does not match Jesus's love, we have failed to meet the standard. That's what makes this verse so important. He has given us a standard, and that standard is how Jesus loves us. D.A. Carson says this about this verse. The new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate and profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. I know that's true about me. And that's because loving like Jesus is not easy. Loving the way that Jesus loves is not easy. So how did Jesus love? How did Jesus love his disciples? Let's just look at that. And not even uh, the 11 chapters before. How did Jesus love from the, the Last Supper on? Well, we see in the Last Supper, he served them. He served them. And not only did he serve his disciples, which a rabbi serving his disciples, that was already a little weird. Not only did he serve them, he served Judas, the one that was going to betray him. Again, this is where we see the timing of Jesus being perfect. It's not like Jesus showed up to the Last Supper and was like, why is Judas here? He wasn't supposed to get an invitation. Why'd you bring him? Whatever, we'll, we'll continue along with the supper and, you know, I'll just include him. No, he did that on purpose. He knew Judas was going to be there. He knew he was going to serve him. He knew he was going to wash his feet. He did it anyways. He washed the feet. He served this man who would be considered his enemy. Not only did he serve his disciples, he forgave them. Shortly after this, spoiler alert, they're all going to abandon Jesus. All of these disciples are going to abandon Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, when he raises from the dead, he forgives all of them. He forgives all of them. On the cross, we see him asked to forgive the people that killed him. 
He served them. He forgave them. And last, and most importantly, he died for them. He died for the sins that put him on the cross. We are to love in that same way. Now, we can't die for other people's sins, but we can serve them. We can forgive them. We can love them like Jesus loves. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you might be thinking, look, I get that. Love people, but not everybody. Like, you know those people, Dave. Like, I'm not gonna love them as much as I love these other people. Maybe, maybe you get a little analytical. You look at the verse and you say, Jesus is talking to his disciples about his disciples. He says, love each other. So he's talking specifically to the disciples. If we look at it that way, that Jesus is saying to love each other, only love the disciples this way. If we're saying that, then we completely misunderstand Jesus. Because Jesus would not tell us to love some one way and others another way. If we think that's the case, we completely misunderstand the nature of Jesus. We completely misunderstand the mission that Jesus has for us. And we should be living that life on mission. I mean, if we were to apply this to our lives, are we inviting people in? Are we inviting our neighbors over? This weekend is a perfect example. We, we get to celebrate something really cool as a nation. Are we inviting neighbors who disagree with us over to our house? Are we spending time with those neighbors that we may have philosophical or philosophical? I said that, right? Thank you. Philosophical, political, spiritual disagreements. Are we inviting them in? That's how we can be on mission. That's how we can love. Another way, are we able to put aside an argument that we've been holding on to for days, weeks, months, years? Are we able to put that argument aside and love the person on the other end? That's how Jesus loved. And if we are to love as Jesus loved us, we need to do that. It's not, it's not a suggestion. This is a command. We need to be doing this. Jesus, the pressure builds in this next verse, verse 35. Jesus says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus now brings this outside of the disciples. He says that people, which the Greek word here used is pas. It means all, any, every. So he's saying all people, anybody, everybody will be able to tell that you follow me based on how you love one another. Now the disciples might've been sitting there saying, wait, they'll only be able to tell that we're disciples based on how we love? Like, what about the last three years? What have I been doing the last three years? I should be called a disciple because I've been following you. That's how they should know I'm a disciple from what I've done. Does that sound familiar? That sound like us? 
how people should know I'm a Christian based on my church attendance the past 20 years. It's stellar. They should know I'm a Christian by seeing me take communion. Oh, I, do you know how long I served on the welcome team? That's how they should know I'm a Christian. And look, all that stuff is good. But Jesus makes it known that love should always be seen in action. Love should always be seen in action. It should be active. It shouldn't be based on your resume. It should be based on now. How are you loving right now? I have this, this box up here. And it is full of every card, note, letter that my wife has ever given to me from the time we started dating. I kept them all because I'm a sap, honestly. Um, what these tell me is that not just my wife loves me, but what these are, are an outpouring of that love. My wife doesn't, it doesn't come to our anniversary and my wife goes, ugh, gotta prove it again. <laughs> gotta make another card. He's just gonna put it in that box. No. This is an outpouring. She does this because she loves me. What is our outpouring of our love? What is our outpouring of our love for Christ? Our outpouring of our love for others? What does that look like? Because people are watching us. Jesus says it. People are watching us. And it may not be for the right reasons. It might be to see if we slip up, to see if we make a mistake. But as they're watching us, in our love, can they see Jesus? In our love that we show, if they're looking for a mistake, can they instead find Jesus? We see John understands this mission. He, Pastor David pointed this out last week, that, that John, in his gospel, he never references himself by the name John. He always calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. See, John doesn't define himself by his own name. He defines himself by Jesus's love. Pastor David said this, Jesus knows our name. He knows our name, but it's his name that needs to be made known. Are we making Jesus's name known? Would we rather have people know who we are or know who Jesus is? Would we rather have people know who we are or that we are right? That uh, I am correct, I am logical, I am making the right decision in this moment. I have the right thought process. Would we re ha rather have people think that we're right or know Jesus' love? Because so often, 
I know I do this. I take the logical approach only. And I say, how are you not getting this? This is the right thing to do. And I completely leave out love. Now, this doesn't mean that we compromise truth. This doesn't mean that we throw truth out the window. I mean, if, you, if we ask the question, what's more important, truth or love? The answer is yes. To pull a Pastor Jason. Truth and love are both important. How we lovingly speak truth is how Jesus can be seen in our lives. And honestly, if we truly glorified God for who he is, we would strive to love the way Christ loves. So are we seeking out people that don't know Jesus' love? Are we seeking them out? Are we actively spending time with people who don't know Jesus? We might just have to ask the question, do we know non-Christians? Or are we so stuck in our bubble that we're like, I'm fine here. I don't need to go outside my bubble. I'm encouraged, blessed, and highly favored. (laughs) If we are not going out, if we are not going out of our way to see people that need Jesus, to interact with people that need Jesus, to invest in people that need Jesus. We're missing the command of God. Because listen, Jesus did not do what he did. He did not die the way that he did for us to sit back and wait. That's not our mission. Our mission is not to wait. Our mission is to go. D.A. Carson says, the more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher his standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize in our selfishness, our own self-centeredness, the depth of our, old, our own sin. And that just keeps going around and around. The more we recognize the depth of our sin, the more we see the standard is raised by Jesus until that gap becomes insurmountable. Nothing we can do can make up that gap. Because our sin has separated us from who God is. And if you're in this room right now, and you have been banking on your resume or something else to bring you in relationship with God, the sad news is that that won't work. The only thing that can make up that gap is Jesus's love for us, the sacrifice that Jesus made. And the good news of the gospel is that if we trust in Jesus, we can be saved. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Do you need to make that decision right now? If you do, we're gonna pray and give you that chance. Let's pray. If that's you and you want to trust in Jesus 
as your Lord and Savior for the first time, just say these words to him. God, I admit that I am a sinner. And I admit that my sin separates me from you. But I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to come to this earth, to die on the cross, and to pay for my sins. Were my resume or anything else that I was trusting in doesn't make up that gap, Jesus does. I trust in him as my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow him the rest of my life. If that was you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you trusted in Jesus for the first time, we want to know about it. We want to celebrate with you. So I'm going to ask you to take a big step of faith right now. If you trusted in Jesus for the first time, just raise your hand. Raise it high. We want to celebrate with you. We have a gift that we want to give you. We want to give you a Bible to help you on that journey. And listen, that is the best decision that you could possibly make. For those of us that have trusted in Jesus, maybe we need to take that challenge, that new commandment from Jesus and actually apply it to our life that we have been lacking in loving like Jesus loves. We've tried to put our own definition on it, on love. Instead of seeing how Jesus has loved us, God, I pray if that's us, that you can convict us, that you can open up doors. You can open up doors that we did not see before, that we have not been seeking out to love others. Love others that disagree with us. Love others that we have been arguing with. To love others that have only hated us. That God, as they give us hate, we can return your love. And that they may see you in us. God, challenge us. Convict us to keep active in this love, not sitting back, not waiting, but going. Thank you for who you are, not just what you do for us, but who you are. Let us love like you love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.